0: 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 5, given on January 5th, 1921. In order to progress further in our studies, today I have to insert a kind of interlude that will help to clarify the real nature of our task we'll have to reflect on the general epistemology of science from a certain perspective. Let's connect with yesterday's lecture by calling to mind once more the conclusions to which we came, at least provisionally. The verification of those conclusions will emerge in the further course of the lectures. We've seen that when contemporary astronomy observes celestial phenomena, and then expresses them in geometrical and numerical terms, we're led to irrational numbers. As was argued yesterday, there's a certain moment in our process of cognition, in applying this process of cognition to the celestial phenomena, when we have to come to a standstill, as it were, and we no longer can declare the mathematical method competent. From a certain point onward, we simply can't continue merely drawing geometrical lines to trace the movements of the heavenly bodies. We can't continue employing mathematical analysis. We can only admit that analysis and geometry take us up to a certain point beyond which we can't go. Again, provisionally, we come to an important conclusion that in reflecting mathematically, on what we see, whether with the naked eye, EYE, or with the aid of instruments, we never can fully capture it in any kind of geometrical figure or mathematical formula. We can't get our arms around the totality of the phenomena through algebra, analysis, or geometry. Consider all the important consequences that flow from this insight. It follows that if we're claiming to contemplate the celestial phenomena as a totality, we have to forego trying to say that the sun moves in such a way that its movement can be represented by a geometrical line, or that the moon moves in such a way that its movement can be represented by a geometrical line. It's precisely our most ardent wish that has to be renounced in principle when we confront the phenomena as a totality. This is all the more significant because the moment someone says, quote, the Copernican system is just as inadequate as the Ptolemaic, close quote, the reflex today is to answer, quote, then let's construct another model, close quote. In later lectures we'll see that we have to replace the drawing of lines with something altogether different, if we want to comprehend the phenomena in their totality. I have to place this negative aspect before you first, before we can enter into the positive, because it's extraordinarily important for us to clarify our thinking in this regard. On the other hand, we saw yesterday that something initially emerges as though from indefinite chaotic regions, and then from a certain point onward it can be grasped schematically, or even, in a sense, geometrically. I mean the phenomena that we confront in embryology. As I said yesterday, in studying the celestial phenomena, through the very process of cognition, we come to a point where we have to recognize that the world is different from what this process of cognition might have led us to believe initially. And, In the phenomena of embryology, we are led to see that there must be something which precedes the facts that we still can comprehend fully. Now, among other things, there recently appeared a certain divergence of outlook among embryologists. I'll describe it only in rough outline. On the one hand, there were the staunch proponents of the biogenetic law which states, as you know, that the development of the individual embryo is a kind of abbreviated recapitulation of the development of the entire race. These people wanted to trace, in a certain way, the development of the embryo causally back to the development of the race. But then a different group came forward, who weren't at all open to explaining the embryological development of the individual, in terms of the evolution of the entire race. The other faction held to a more or less mechanistic conception of embryonic development, saying that one needed to take into account only the forces directly present in the phenomena of embryology. For example, Oskar Hertwig was trained within the strict biogenetic school of Haeckel, but then became a thoroughgoing mechanist, even though it may not be metric, mechanistic explanation proceeds in a way that's at least similar to that of mathematics. What we see historically, and it's precisely the way in which these things developed historically, to which I want to draw your attention, is that initially something different is assumed as an hypothesis, and only then a mechanistic mathematical paradigm is taken up. I see these issues as having arisen initially more as questions of epistemology. On the one hand, we're pushed up against a limit in the process of cognition, where we can go no further with the paradigm we favor initially. On the other hand, our only chance of grasping embryology with ordinary methods is to make presuppositions which we at first simply allow to stand, saying, We find something in the realm of the real, the beginnings of which have to be left indeterminate. Then, from a certain point onward, we can set to work, viewing what we observe in terms of forms and relationships that are at least similar to those of mathematics and mechanics. Bearing these things in mind, I was moved to insert a kind of general reflection into today's lecture. As I have already pointed out, the ideal of modern scientific research is to observe outer nature as independently as possible, to establish the phenomena in pure objectivity, as it were, by excluding the human observer. We shall see that precisely through this method of excluding the human, it becomes impossible to transcend the kinds of limitations we've now been able to note on two different sides. This is connected with the fact that the principle of metamorphosis, which, as you know, was first conceived and presented comprehensively, albeit still in an elementary way, by Goethe, has hardly been followed up at all to date. To be sure, it's been pursued to some extent in morphology. Yet even there we've seen already that contemporary morphology cannot succeed because it still can't see clearly how the form and construction of a hollow or long bone, for example, stands in relation to that of a cranial bone. To do this, we would have to reach a way of thinking, whereby we would first study what's within, say, the inner surface of a hollow bone, and then draw a parallel to the outer surface of a cranial bone. This means a kind of inversion such as when a glove is turned inside out. But at the same time there is an alteration of the form, an alteration of the surface tensions, through the reversing or turning inside out. Only if we follow the metamorphosis of forms in this way, though it may seem complicated, will our thinking attain its goals. But when we leave morphology and enter more into the functional realm, We find within conventional scientific thinking only the most rudimentary attempts to extend the notion of metamorphosis. It's essential that we extend this notion of metamorphosis to the functions of the organism as well. I made a start in my book titled The Case for Anthroposophy, where I offered at least an initial sketch of the threefold nature of the human constitution, recognized as both a sum total and an interaction of functions. At least in outline, I explained how we have to distinguish those functions and processes in our human constitution, which may be regarded as belonging to the nerves and senses, how we then have to recognize as independent processes all that's rhythmical in the human organism, and again we have to recognize the metabolic processes as independent I pointed out that these three kinds of processes include all of the functions within the human constitution. Anything else that appears as a function within the human organism is a subset of these three processes. It's essential to see that all phenomena in the organic realm, although appearing outwardly side by side, are interconnected through the principle of metamorphosis. People are disinclined to view things macroscopically today, but there's a way in which we have to return to the macroscopic aspect. Otherwise, through the very lack of a synthetic understanding of what's living, problems will arise which are not inherently insoluble, but are made so by our methodological prejudices. You see, in learning to understand the human constitution in this threefold aspect, we have to view as a given within this tripartition that all our relationships with the outer world have these three aspects. Our life of nerves and senses is one way in which we're related to the outer world as human beings. Through all rhythmic processes, we're related to it in another way. It lies within the very nature of the rhythmical processes that they can't be considered as isolated within us apart from the rest of the world, for they depend upon the breathing, which is a process of perpetual interchange between the human body and the outer world. Again in the metabolism, there is a very obvious process of interchange between the human being and the outer world. The processes of the nervous and sensory systems can also be regarded as an extension of the outer world into our inner nature. This process of extension becomes easier to understand if we distinguish between the actual perceptions, which are mediated principally through the senses, and the accompanying process of human cognition, the forming of ideas and mental pictures it's unnecessary to go into these things more deeply now. It's evident enough that sensory perception is more of a reciprocal relationship between human beings and the external world, while ideation takes us more into our inner life than is the case with sensory perception. I am referring only to somatic as opposed to psychological processes. Again, leaving aside for the moment the rhythmic system, breathing and the circulation of the blood, the metabolic system brings us to something else, which is in definite contrast to this inward leading process from sensory perception to ideation. A thorough study of the metabolism leads us to establish a connection between the inner metabolic processes and the functions of the human limbs. These functions of the limbs are connected with the metabolism. If people would proceed more rationally than they are wont to do, they would discover the essential connection between our metabolism, situated as it is more deeply within the body, and the processes to which we subject ourselves when we move our limbs accordingly. These are also metabolic. The actual organic functions underlying the movements of the limbs are processes of metabolism. Consumption of material substances is what we ultimately find if we examine the organic functions here. But it won't do to stop short at the metabolic process as such. Rather, there's a way in which this process leads as much from the human being toward the outer world as sensory perception leads from the outer world toward the interior of the human organism. It's imperative that we take up this kind of fundamental research, otherwise no progress will be possible on certain fronts. What is it that's directed outward from the metabolism, just as something is directed inward from sensory perception to the forming of ideas and mental pictures? It's the process of fertilization. Fertilization points in the opposite direction, from the bodily organism outward. Representing it diagrammatically, in sensory perception, the direction is outside, in. This incoming process of sensory perception is then fertilized, in quotes, as it were, by the organism, and we encounter the forming of ideas. Parenthesis, please don't take offense at the expression fertilized. Later, we'll replace this provisional, seemingly symbolic language with something more directly indicative of the underlying reality. Close See Figure 1. The so called metabolic processes direct us to the other side, outward, and we come to the process of fertilization. Hence the phenomena that manifest themselves at the two poles of threefold human nature lead us to something that can be contemplated from two antithetical perspectives. In the middle is everything that belongs to the rhythmic system. And if you pose the question, what in the rhythmic system is directed outward and what is directed inward, then you find that it's not possible to make such sharp distinctions between the inner metabolism and fertilization or between perception and ideation. Rather, in the case of inhalation and exhalation, we find processes that swim into each other. The process is more of a unity. We can't distinguish quite so sharply, yet it's possible to say, see again, figure one, As sensory perception comes from outside and fertilization goes outward, so too in inhalation and exhalation there's a going inward and a going outward. Breathing is a kind of intermediate process. And now you'll already begin to note something that looks like a metamorphosis, something unified, underlying threefold human nature, organized now in one way, Now in another. In the upward direction. This can be followed very well physiologically. Some of you already know what I am about to say. Observe the process of respiration. The intake of air influences the organism in a certain way, namely during inhalation. The cerebrospinal fluid, in which the spinal cord and brain are steeped, is pressed upward. You have to remember that the brain is in fact floating in cerebral fluid and is buoyed up thereby. We wouldn't be able to live at all without this element of buoyancy. We won't go into that now, however. Rather, we'll only draw attention to the fact that here there is an upward movement of the cerebral fluid during inhalation and a downward movement during exhalation. Thus the process of respiration actually plays into the cranium, into the head. In this process we have a real cooperation and interplay of the nervous system and the senses with the rhythmic system. You see how the organs work to bring about what we might call a metamorphosis of functions. Then we can say, even if only hypothetically or only as a postulate, Perhaps something similar will prove to be the case regarding metabolism and fertilization. But in this realm of the body, it's harder to reach a conclusion. Indeed, this is a general characteristic of the human organism. It's comparatively easy to understand the reciprocal relationship between the rhythmic system and the nervous system in processes accessible to thought. But it's not so easy to find a transparent relationship between the rhythmic system and the processes of metabolism and fertilization. Call to your aid the knowledge of physiology at your disposal, and the deeper you go into the matter, the better you'll perceive this. Moreover, it's perfectly obvious why that's the case. Consider the regular alternation of sleeping and waking. Through sensory perception, You're actually given over to the external world. You continuously stand exposed to the outer world. Then you set to work with your thinking and ideation and you bring a certain order and orientation into what you see around you in your waking life. It becomes ordered through an activity that works from within outward. The orientation comes from within. Actually, we can say... We confront an external world which is already ordered according to its own laws, and we ourselves bring another order into it out of our own inner nature. We think about the outer world, we put together the facts and phenomena according to our own taste. Unfortunately, it's often very bad taste. Out of our inner nature something is introduced into the outer world that doesn't necessarily correspond at all to this outer world. If that weren't the case, we never would fall victim to error. Out of our own inner nature comes a certain transformation of the world around us. But now, looking at the other pole of human nature, you'll agree that the disorder comes from outside, both in metabolism and in fertilization for it's left very largely to our own arbitrary choices, how we sustain metabolism by taking food, and even more so, how we behave as regards fertilization. Hence we're led to the outer world when we look into arbitrariness. The outer world is, initially, quite foreign to us. We do feel some degree of familiarity with the arbitrariness we introduce out of our own inner being, into the process of perception. But we don't feel so familiar with the arbitrariness that we bring into ourselves from the outer world. We have, for instance, only a very slight idea, at least most people have an astonishingly scant understanding, of what actually happens in our relationship with the world when we eat or drink this or that. And as for what sort of relationship we have to the outer world, during the intervals of time between our meals, to this we pay very little attention, and even if we did, it wouldn't help us much. Here we come into an indefinite, impalpable region, I would say. Thus, at the one pole of our human constitution, we have the ordered cosmos, which extends its gulfs, as it were, into our sensory organs, see figure two don't misunderstand the word ordered, in quotes. It's used only to characterize the facts. We don't want to get lost in philosophical arguments as to whether the cosmos is really ordered or not. We want only to express what is the case. Close This pole stands opposite the other, which we're compelled to call the disordered cosmos when we consider everything that comes into us from the cosmos everything we stuff ourselves with, or, again, how the process of fertilization is undertaken, so very irregularly, etc. Contemplating everything that approaches the metabolism from the outer world, we have to admit that we're confronted here by a disordered cosmos, disordered at least to begin with, so far as we are concerned. And now, let me add this today in parenthesis, and now we can add to this the more universal, epistemological question, as it were. In what way are we related then to the starry heavens? Well, in the first place we see them. But by now you'll have gained a vivid feeling for the uncertainties that assail us when we begin to think about the starry heavens. It's not just that the cultures of different ages have felt convinced of the truth of the most diverse astronomical systems. As we saw yesterday, we have to face the fact that in principle we cannot capture the totality of the starry heavens with mathematical and mechanistic models, which afford the very highest degree of certainty within our inner life of thinking. Not only do we have to admit that we can't trust to mere sensory appearances as regards the heavens. We even have to recognize here that when we employ what now lies even deeper within us, we get nowhere near the starry heavens, that we're surveying with our senses. It's no mere figure of speech. There's an absolutely real sense in which the starry heavens present themselves to us in their totality, a relative totality, of course, only through sensory perception taking our start from sensory perception, when we try to go farther inward in an attempt to understand the starry heavens, as human beings we feel somewhat foreign to them. We get a strong feeling of our inability to comprehend them. And yet we feel that something intelligible must be there in the phenomena that we behold. So, now we have to say, outside us then is the ordered cosmos, Actually, it presents itself only to our senses. It most certainly doesn't reveal itself immediately to our intellectual understanding. We have this ordered cosmos on the one hand, and now we find that we can't take it with us when we enter into our human nature. We say to ourselves, We're sent away from sensory perception toward our inner human nature, but then we can't enter into our inner life with this cosmos. Hence astronomy is actually something that won't fit into our heads. That isn't just a figure of speech. It's a demonstrated epistemological fact. We can't get astronomy into our heads. It doesn't fit there. What lies at the other extreme, that of the disordered cosmos, let's just look at the facts. We don't want to propound theories or seek hypotheses. We want only to clarify the facts. Imagine that you're exploring the world to discover in purely factual terms the opposite of celestial phenomena and the opposite of human perception and ideation as an extension of the outer world, of the ordered cosmos, within ourselves as human beings. Then, In the case of the human constitution, you're led to the process of metabolism together with fertilization. You're led into something disordered. Similarly, if you begin your deliberations in the outer world, see figure two, and then you want to descend in this outer world, descend from astronomy, as it were, whither are you led? You're led into meteorology all the phenomena of the outer world once more relating to meteorology. If you study meteorological phenomena and attempt to impose some kind of lawfulness upon them, the result stands in exactly the same relationship to the ordered cosmos of astronomy as metabolism and reproduction and all that other capricious stuff stands to that which initially emerges above within perception where something that's illuminated by the whole of the starry heavens then begins to become disordered only within our inner life, within ideation. And so you see, if we regard human nature not in isolation, but rather in connection with the whole of nature, then we can situate human nature within the larger picture in this way. Through our head we participate the domain of astronomy. Through our metabolism, we participate the domain of meteorology. Thus, on both sides, human beings stand within the cosmos as a whole. Now, let's add another thought. The day before yesterday, we spoke of processes that are a kind of inner organic reflection of the lunar processes, namely the processes in the female organism. In the female organism, there is something like an alternation of phases, a succession of events taking their course over 28 days. Although as things are now, these events are not at all dependent on any actual lunar processes, yet they are, nevertheless, an inner reflection of lunar events. I also drew your attention to the psychosomatic fact of human memory. If we really analyze human memory and take into account the underlying inner organic process, we have to view it as parallel to these functions of the female body. It's just that the female processes grip the body more intensely than is the case when the body is holding fast some outer experience it has undergone. What comes to expression in these 28 days as a result of external impressions is no longer contained within the individual life between birth and death. On the other hand, the experiencing of outer events and the memory of them is of a shorter duration and takes its course between birth and death within a single lifetime. But viewed from a psychosomatic perspective, both processes are exactly the same inner experience of an outer event. Parenthesis in my book, titled An Outline of Esoteric Science, I have already given very clear indications regarding this kind of experience in relation to the world. Close Now, study the functions of the ovum up until fertilization, and you'll find that they're entirely involved in this inner 28-day rhythm. They belong, in a way, to this process. But as soon as fertilization takes place, the processes in the ovum immediately fall out of this inner life of the human being. A reciprocal relationship with the outer world is at once established. Observing the process of fertilization, we're led to see that what's happening in the ovum from then onward no longer has anything to do with inner processes in the human body. Fertilization tears the ovum out of the purely inner organic process and leads it over into the realm of those processes which are the common property of our inner human nature and of the cosmos, a realm in which there are no barriers, between what unfolds within us and what unfolds out in the cosmos. Therefore, what occurs after fertilization, all that happens in the forming of the embryo, has to be studied in connection with external cosmic events, and not merely in terms of developmental mechanisms within the ovum itself in its successive stages. Think about what this actually means. Everything that unfolds within the ovum before fertilization is, so to speak, within the domain of our own inner organic process as human beings. But in what happens after fertilization, and is brought about thereby, we open ourselves as human beings to the cosmos. Cosmic influences prevail here. Thus, on the one hand, we have the cosmos working in upon us up to the point at which the life of ideas begins. In sensory perception, we enter into a reciprocal relationship with the cosmos. We investigate this relation, for example, by means of the laws of perspective and other such things, through the laws of sensory physiology and such. The way in which we perceive an outer object has to be investigated through such laws. Suppose we watch a railway train traveling past us, across our field of view. We see the whole movement lengthwise. If, however, we're standing at a point directly in front of the train, and the train is far enough away, however fast the train is going, we see it as if it were stationary. Hence, the way we visualize the world depends upon our relationship to the cosmos. We stand in the midst of pictorial processes, and we ourselves belong within those pictures. However, we become entangled in something chaotic. For ultimately our various world systems are chaotic, if we try simply to draw conclusions regarding the real events from what we see externally. On the other hand, with regard to fertilization, human beings are involved not in pictorial processes, but rather in real cosmic processes. Thus, at the one pole, humans are immersed in the cosmos in a pictorial way, and at the other pole in a real way. The very thing that eludes us when we look out into the cosmos works in upon us when we are subjected to the process of fertilization. Hence, what we're seeing here is something that's unified in itself, being split into two components. In the one case, a mere picture stands before us, and we can't break through to the reality. In the other case, the reality confronts us. Through it, a new human life comes into being. But it doesn't become a clear picture, it seems to us as lawless as the weather. Here we really do find ourselves faced by two poles. From either side we receive half the world. It's as though we receive the picture from the one side and the reality that underlies it from the other. You see, the way we confront the world isn't as simple as one might imagine philosophically. In saying, the sensory picture of the world is given, now let's spin out the reality philosophically. This problem of finding the reality underlying sensory perception is, of course, one of philosophy's fundamental epistemological questions. What we are seeing here is that human beings find themselves situated in a curious way between mere images and reality. The upshot is that we have to find some other way, something very different from philosophical speculation, to mediate between image and reality. Now, in the course of historical evolution, older cultures have already tried to approach this secret by experiencing the intermediary realm of inhalation and exhalation. Ancient Indian wisdom, which, as I often say, we should not try to emulate today, proceeded more or less instinctively from the following presupposition. Sensory perceptions are of no use in our striving for reality nor are the processes of reproduction, for they yield no clear picture. So let's cleave to the middle region, which undergoes metamorphoses, now in the direction of picture forming, now in the direction of reality. Let's cleave to the middle region. That's where it has to be possible to approach both reality and the picture simultaneously. That's why ancient Indian wisdom sought to perfect the artificial breathing exercises of the yoga system. The ancient Indians sought to reach a certain reality by conducting the breathing process consciously and thereby grasping simultaneously both picture and reality. And if you ask why this should be, the answer is that breathing unites picture and reality. Parenthesis, the answer may be more or less instinctive, though not entirely so, as you can see if you study in the philosophical texts themselves how this strange system of breathing exercises arose. Close breathing unites picture and reality. The picture is experienced inwardly in its relation to reality, when the process of breathing is raised up out of the unconscious into consciousness. We'll never understand this development in the historical evolution of humanity unless we regard it from an inner perspective that relates it to human physiology. Looking at it in this light, you can say, there was a time when humanity sought to comprehend reality by looking to human nature itself. For pictures of the world, we have the senses, for reality, something quite different. In the same way, earlier cultures turned to the part of the human constitution that isn't closed in upon itself yet in order to fashion images, and they turned to the same part that also isn't closed off on the other side in order to experience reality. They turned to the undifferentiated process of breathing, and in so doing they integrated themselves as human beings into the whole of the cosmos. They didn't contemplate a world apart from us in the way our prevailing scientific paradigm does. Rather, they beheld a world for which our human rhythms as such become an organ of perception. They told themselves, as it were, this world can be grasped neither by our nerves and senses nor by our metabolisms. In the workings of our senses and our nervous system, Human consciousness attenuates the data of experience into a mere picture. In the workings of metabolism, reality meets us in a way that never rises into consciousness at all. By regulating the process of breathing, the ancient sages of India sought to find the interaction between what's real, yet experienced only unconsciously, and what's attenuated into a picture and we won't ever be able to understand the ancient cosmic systems that preceded Ptolemy until we can begin to intuit how the universe would look to a paradigm that was able to synthesize, however inarticulately, what we currently experience as separate, the process of cognition on the one hand and the reality underlying the processes of reproduction on the other. Now consider ancient cosmogenies from this point of view, especially those that can be found in the Bible. Admittedly, these teachings are difficult to understand from a modern perspective. Consider the biblical story of the creation, particularly as interpreted by those who still kept alive the old traditions. Fundamentally, the biblical story of creation can be understood only if we are able to combine the genesis of the world we derive From examinations of the outer universe, with insights derived from embryology. The cosmology set forth in Genesis is, in fact, a compound of embryology and the glories of the outer sensory world. Hence the repeated attempts to interpret the biblical story of creation, even word for word, by way of embryological facts. Truly, it cries out for such an interpretation. I introduced this today for quite a definite reason. You see, if our present studies, intended as they are to form a bridge between the external science of today and spiritual science, are to have any meaning at all, we first have to acquire a very definite feeling, and we have to permeate ourselves with that feeling. Otherwise we'll get no further. We have to become able to feel that certain modern ways of thought are superficial and external to feel that in a thoroughly profound way. We have to learn to see the superficiality, on one hand, of setting up pictures of the universe that try to make only some slight corrections in the Copernican system, and on the other hand, of doing research on embryology in the ways that are customary today. Here, one might recall Nietzsche's lines, The world is deeply wrought, deeper, than the day has thought, which stem from just such a feeling. We must actively resist the urge to seek superficial explanations by merely accepting what presents itself immediately, even if it's enhanced by instruments such as the telescope or the microscope or X-ray apparatus. We must learn to have respect for explanations of another kind, aspiring to other faculties of knowledge, such as were sought by the ancient Indian sages in the yoga system, so that we can penetrate reality and find the means of forming an adequate picture of reality. Since we now have outgrown the yoga system, we should feel ourselves impelled toward a new way of penetrating the universe by processes that still need to be developed, processes that can't be derived easily from the habitual methods of today. For as human beings, we're placed in the middle between the picture of the world, a picture that presents itself to us in an overwhelmingly forceful way in the starry heavens, the secrets of which will never be disclosed solely by our intellectual faculties, and what meets us so changeably in the processes of reproduction, by virtue of which the human race exists. Into the middle of this great unity which is thus separated for us into two halves, we are placed as human beings. To find a connection between the two, we must seek a path of spiritual development, even as humanity did in an older form through yoga, a form no longer viable today. Astronomy, as it has been practiced in the past, will never lead to a grasp of reality. It will yield only insubstantial models, And although we seize upon something real and substantial within its realm, embryology will never enable us to penetrate reality with any kind of concrete ideas. Astronomical models of the cosmos are reality impoverished. Embryological models are conceptually impoverished. We cannot penetrate the facts with such concepts. Thus in epistemology, It's also the case that we have to approach our human nature as a whole, instead of merely indulging in philosophical and psychological fantasies about sensory perception. We have to take our start from the whole of human nature. We have to learn how to situate our human nature as a whole within the larger context of the cosmos as a whole. It's very evident today how, on the one hand, the basis of cognition is being lost in astronomy. And it's evident how, on the other hand, in embryology, where knowledge fails to reach the wellsprings of reality, all that results is a mere talking in circles around the given facts, whether in terms of the biogenetic law or in terms of developmental mechanisms. Clearly, what's needed is an expansion of our methodology in both of these directions. I had to put all this before you, so that we might understand each other better in what follows. For it will help you to see that it would be useless for me simply to add another formal picture of the universe to the existing ones, although, admittedly, that's the kind of thing people seem to want these days. The end of Lecture 5